Last week we talked about um, basically two things. We brought up two things in, in chapter 1 of Acts. This part where he said, but wait for the promise that my, the, um, that my father had talked about, that my father was sending. And we asked the question, what was the promise and why wait? Pretty easily we were able to determine that the Holy Spirit was the promise. You look at um, verse 5 and it says that, um, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the subject matter of the promise is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the promise. Most of you guys wrote something down in your Bible. If you weren't here and you didn't write that down, real quick, you could write that. The promise somewhere out to the side was the Holy Spirit. That's important to know. And then we asked, why were they to wait? Why was it important for them to wait? Because Jesus was very adamant about them waiting. And we talked about what it says in verse uh, 2 when he says, um, until the day when he was taken up, listen, that's not the part I'm talking about, um, that he had given orders to the apostles who he had chosen. Basically, really quick, he's mentioning the, the, um, the great, not commandment, the, uh, the great commission, where you're supposed to go into all nations and you are supposed to uh, disciples, make disciples of all men and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you're not able to do that not even remotely close to doing a good job unless you will wait for the Holy Spirit, unless you are under the power and under the influence, under the authority of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, he talks about how we need to be witnesses. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria. It is impossible to be a good witness unless we are filled with the Holy Spirit, unless the Holy Spirit of God has come upon us with power. And so um, we talked about how um, the disciples needed that. That without the Holy Spirit, we are basically weak witnesses. I would venture to say that the disciples did not want to be weak witnesses. Today, we do not want to be weak witnesses. And so Jesus said, well, in order for you not to be a weak witness, you need to wait for the promise. We talked about the NIV version. Wait for the gift that my Father has promised. And so, now what the disciples didn't realize... They didn't realize it, but there at the end, when Jesus is kind of wrapping things up, he's about to ascend into heaven. His, his time on earth was about to be done. They didn't, they didn't realize it, but they asked a question that would completely prove that Jesus' instructions to them were the right instructions. They asked a question that would prove <laughs> their need to wait for the promise to wait for the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. It says that when they came together, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? I know we're only on verse 6, and we haven't gotten too far. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to go too fast. This is the first time I've ever done um, a study of Acts like this. And I just want all of it. You know what I mean? I don't want to miss anything. So I really kind of want to camp here for a second. I want to know where is this question coming from? And why did Jesus respond to the disciples the way that he responded? He said, it's not for you to know the times that my father has fixed by his own authority. And then again, he went back into, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Why did they ask the question, why did Jesus respond the way he did? So if you got your pen and some paper, 
or your Bible or whatever, you want to write some things down, maybe some things you've never heard before. The kingdom had been taken away from the Jews, the kingdom of Israel, kingdom of Judah, Jewish kingdom had been taken away from the Jews several times. And at this time, Judea was reduced to a Roman province and they were under the power of uh, the Roman government. The nation as a whole had been awaiting, they had been seeking, they had had their eyes out for the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would come and be the king of the Jews, the one who would be their deliverer, the one who would be their savior. They were looking for him. He would be the one to come and deliver them from the yoke of the Romans or the heavy um, rule, the heavy oppression that the Romans had over them. They were looking for the Messiah to come and deliver from them. They were looking for the son of David who would come and be their king. When I say son of David, most of you know that what I'm talking about is the the prophecy said that he would be of the line of Jesse, who was the father of David. Sometimes he was called, they would call him the son of David. Even the uh, the demons would call him that. He would come up on the scene and the demons would be like, oh, dang, there's the son of David. You know, you need to know that's because... He was, it was prophesied that the Messiah would come from the line or the lineage or the, from the family of David or from Jesse. And so they were looking for him. They thought that the Messiah would restore the kingdom to Israel. In other words, that, they would, that he would make the nation of the Jews as great and as reputable as in the days of King David and Solomon, and King Asa, and Jehoshaphat, and all of these guys, that he would, the Messiah, would come and restore the scepter to Judah. Real quick, turn to Genesis 49. It's the first book of the Bible. Turn to chapter 49 and look at verse 10. (coughs) That the Messiah would restore the scepter to Judah. Judea was the Greek and Roman name for the area that was once called the kingdom of Judah. So they took that, the Romans and the Greek, and they turned it into Judea. In case you didn't know that. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now it's hard for me to read this with a straight face because I have a dog named Shiloh. So, the scepter shall not depart until my dog enters into the... So, it's kind of weird. We spell it a little different, but that's what they wanted to name our dog, Shiloh, and he's a great dog. But I do want to look at a couple of these words in this scripture, because this is a really important part, and it really will help us understand why the disciples are asking the kind of questions they're asking. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The word scepter basically is, it, it's, it just means staff or rod. If you guys know anything about... Um, you know, culture back then, Hebrew culture or whatever, um, shepherding was a big deal. You know, David wrote the Psalm, uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And so the idea of a shepherd ruling or shepherding or um, tending with a rod or a staff, the way that they would shepherd and what they would do with the rod and the staff, um, you understand that it is a, is a figure, a symbol of authority. You can even write that in there. The scepter is a mark of authority. So you could read that scripture like this. The mark of authority shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. I'm just imagining that whenever, maybe as he's watching over his flock, 
or tending or making sure everything's in, in check. He's standing there with his staff right there and just between his feet. I don't know. This is the picture I get. But the scepter, the mark of authority, the staff, the rod, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. The word Shiloh just means um, rest, to rest. It, can mean, it means peace. And so, and then it says, to him shall be the obedience of the people. The word Shiloh is capitalized, so they're obviously talking about someone. So you can look at this, and there's some really great stuff here in, in Genesis 49. But basically, in this part, I just want you to know that Jacob was saying that until the coming of the peacemaker, until the coming of Jesus, until the coming of Messiah, the one that they were desiring, the one they'd been waiting for, the true king, the king of kings, the real king of the Jews, Judah's self-governments as a tribe should not cease. You listening? Until the coming of the peacemaker, the Messiah, the true king, Judah's self-government as a tribe should not cease. But it had ceased, hadn't it? It had ceased. They were ruled by an oppressive government. They were ruled by the Romans, and they hated it. They hated that they were ruled by the Romans. They hated the Romans with a passion. They ruled over them with a heavy yoke. The yoke of oppression, you see that kind of um, terminology all the time in the Psalms and as it related to Israel and Egypt. But that's how they felt. They felt that same weight, that same heavy yoke being under the rule of the Romans. The Romans were a bunch of dorks to the Jews. They didn't like it. They hated it. In fact, one of the disciples that was standing there, a part of the question that they were asking Jesus there in verse uh, 6 Is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom? One of the disciples standing there was Simon the Zealot. Look over in verse 13. When they had entered, this is Acts 1, verse 13, not Genesis uh, 49, 13. It says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near uh, Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room, where they were staying, that is, in other words, the roll call was Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These were all, they talks about how they were all in one mind, they continue in prayer. One of the disciples was Simon the zealot. I don't know if you guys know what a zealot was. I think for a long time, I just thought that he was just really zealous. The guy was just pretty passionate. And he was passionate. But this, is, this means more. A zealot, the word zealot basically, uh, it just means someone that is very fervent. They're a fervent proponent of something. They're very impassioned about something, an issue or this. To the point where they can be militant. Like super zealous. Very impassionate. Does that make sense? Impassioned. Does that make sense? And so that's what a zealot was. The original zealots. It's not that just he was some zealous guy. Oh, he was a zealot. No, no, no. The original zealots, it was a regime. It was a, a group of people. The original zealots were members of a Jewish sect that at first, they just rece- uh, refused to, to pay tribute to the pagan Romans. They refused to pay taxes. Basically, they refused to pay any kind of respect to them at all. 
Anything that showed honor or respect to Romans, they refused to do it because they were pagans. They occupied the land at the time, and they were ticked off about it. They were very impassioned about the issue. They wouldn't also, they wouldn't budge on the fact that Jehovah God was their king, and there is no other. God is our king, and we cannot be moved. We will not be shaken on that fact. It eventually got to the point where the zealots were beginning to assassinate Romans, especially Roman officials. There's a lot of crazy stuff that the zealots were doing. They were impassioned, right? You guys hear what I'm saying? They were zealots. And one of the ze- there was someone that was a zealot that was one of Jesus' disciples. Simon was part of this group. And the group goes way back for, you know, probably before Simon's lifetime. But he was considered. He had the title over and over and over. You see it. He was a zealot. They got to the point where they were assassinating Romans. They were also assassinating basically anyone, including Jews, who had any kind of cooperation with the Romans. It was a very intense time. These guys were serious about what they were impassioned about. Some might have even said they were crazy. A lot of people respected them because they were standing up and doing something about it. You know, The zealots were also called Sicarii which means dagger men, because these zealots, these Sicarii, were bad to the bone with a Roman dagger. These guys were like Jason Bourne on steroids, you know what I mean? You know, like the, the Roman dagger was called a, a, a how do you say, a sicca, a sicca, I guess. And so these guys were, they were more than just impassioned. They were people that were well-trained. They were like militia. They were like taking care of business in the name of God. And so they were very passionate. Granted, there was not a military force or power at the time greater than the Roman military. And so the rebellion was eventually shut down, driven back, driven away, um, gotten rid of, whatever you want to say. And the zealots just scattered. There were even zealots who would just commit suicide rather than be surrendered to the Romans. These guys were just, they were legit. They were the real deal. They wanted the kingdom of Judah. They wanted Judea, that area, to be restored back to them. You hear what I'm saying? Now I may be thinking, well, why is this so important? What does this matter? What does this have to do with with Acts chapter 1? Well, really, as far as understanding verse 6, it has everything to do with it. This is the question that the disciples were asking them. One of the disciples was a zealot. I think what was on the forefront of the minds of just about every Jew was the restoration of an earthly kingdom and everything that would come along with Judea or Judah, that area, Israel, being back on the map. You know what I mean? Not being under oppression but being on top not just the disciples every Jew you know it'd be like if we if we were all of a sudden um, under the oppression of some other country and we're just like oh we remember the days when we weren't we remember the days when we had our freedom or we had our whatever you know and we long for the day when that'll come again that was that was the average Jew we're wanting things to be just the way it was when good old King David was king. 
when he was ruling the land and there was peace and there was quiet and there was prosperity. We didn't have a care in the world. We weren't worried about who was invading this or whatever. We had it under control because we were bad to the bone. We were in control. We were ruling other nations. We weren't being ruled. We were ruling other nations. We had a reputation. God was on our side. And we had comfort. Basically, the Jews wanted what they wanted. In fact, there's a group of Jews that would actually argue about, in this Genesis 49, there's a group that would actually argue about the word Shabbat, which is where, what we translate um, scepter. It's most, most commonly translated scepter. But there was an argument about it that it, was ju- it just meant rod and staff, and it only talked about um, the role of a shepherd and how he would use it to prod and poke and, and discipline and this. And so their idea of this scripture, there's certain Jews that had the idea that the scripture was affliction shall not depart from us until the Messiah comes. Affliction shall not depart from the Jews until Messiah comes. Now think about that. This, this is actually a widespread rendering of this verse. Affliction shall not depart until the Messiah comes. And guess what they wanted? Affliction, gone. Difficulty, gone. Anything that was hard, anything that wasn't what they wanted when they wanted, and their comfort, they wanted it gone. And there were some that were actually very passionate about it, the zealots and others. They wanted what they wanted. And ultimately, you look at verse 6, and there can be several reasons why the disciples, you know, asked the question that they asked. I believe one of the main things that was still in their hearts, even after being with Jesus for three years and hearing him teach over and over and over things about a spiritual kingdom versus an earthly kingdom, a spiritual battle versus battles against flesh and blood. Something that seemed to be still deep in their heart was, when will we get to be on top again? When will life be smooth sailing again? When are we going to get to be esteemed again? When will we get to be the popular ones again? When are we going to get to walk around with our heads tall again? When will the day return to us when we are the ones being served. It's important to know that in the scheme of what's going on in chapter, uh, Acts chapter 1. This is something that is in their heart. I want you to look at Luke 22 with me. I don't know if you remember last week, but I said that um, the writer of the book of Acts was actually Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. Look at um, Luke chapter 22, and then go on down to um, twenty. Let's just start in 20. No. Let's start in 14. I want to back up. Chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him, they were having what was called the Passover feast. They were having, you know, we know it as the Last Supper, maybe. This is where we get our whole communion thing from. But they were celebrating Passover, and they were having the Passover meal, the Seder. And he said to them, I have 
earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and gave thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And he had taken some bread and given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant of my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, the kings. Okay, let me just pause. (laughs) You guys with me tracking? Okay, these guys are celebrating Passover. So, like, this is the most popular celebration meal, memorial, we were delivered from Israel kind of feast you can celebrate. They had just heard Jesus say, I'm, I'm going to die. It's not going to be good. Here's my blood. Here's my body. Drink it. Remember me. So I would say this is a very tender moment, a very spiritual moment. Wouldn't you guys agree? It's like, Wow. What do you mean? You know, but they're like, they're listening or, or whatever. And then he says, somebody's going to, one of you guys is going to betray me. I mean, even more heart wrenching, right? Like what? Not me, not me. It must be you, you know, this kind of a thing. And then all of a sudden they start arguing about which of one of them is the greatest among them. Jesus was probably going, oh my gosh, I picked the wrong 12. <laughs> you know, how crazy. I can't, it's, it's just, it's, ugh, all the, they're worried about who's going to be the greatest. And let me just pause and say, this, is, this thing is deep in all of us. There are times where we're in spiritual moments. There's times where we're in the presence of Jesus, the Lord, whatever. And man, really, kind of all we can think about is, what's up for me? What's good for me? How can I be seen? I wonder what people think of me right now. I wonder, you hear what I'm saying? So it's deep in all of us. We can judge them. We can't judge them too harshly. Then it says in verse 25, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Benefactors. You look at that, and it's basically talking about affluent um, princes. I mean, people who have nice jobs or are set up in society, and they make money, and they have servants. People. He's basically talking about the type of people who are esteemed and that are served. And then in verse 26, he says, But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. Verse 27, he says, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is is saying, you have witnessed, in in light of their conversation that they ridiculously were having, 
you guys have witnessed and experienced a different type of greatness. You are, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest? Listen, I have, what do you say? I am among you as the one who serves. And you've seen me serve. You've experienced serving with me. You've experienced exactly what I'm talking about. I among you is the one who serves. And look what he says in verse 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. In other words, you guys have seen me get railed on. You guys have seen me get clobbered by the esteemed, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people who were the religious leaders of the day. They nailed me and railed me and trashed me because I was serving the hopeless. And because I was serving the helpless, these people were the type of people that you're wanting to be are the very ones that were railing me. I'm a servant, and I got clobbered for doing that. And then look what he says in 29. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Basically, he's saying you guys are on the verge of experiencing a greatness that you could never imagine or conceive. And then he says, Simon, Satan came to me and, and demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that you, your faith may not fail, and you... When once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And then Peter, (laughs) he's like, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and and death. There's an exclamation point there. He may have yelled. He may have got riled up. Now listen, this is Peter, the Jew, talking. This is Peter the riled up about Roman oppression talking. This is the Peter who is ready to die for an earthly kingdom, for a temporal, a temporary kingdom. Jesus says, Peter, I'm telling you, man, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Peter, Jesus, and, you know, Peter's all, and Jesus is like, The same disciples that sat at the table with Jesus at his last meal with them that argued about who would be the greatest are the same ones that are standing here before Jesus is about to have his last words with them asking, when are you going to bring back the good old days? When are you going to restore things back to the way they were? When is that list of things that we would like to see back in our lives going to come to us? If you're writing things down, I want you to write this down. Their eyes had witnessed a suffering servant, but their heart still longed for a conquering king. Their eyes had witnessed a suffering servant, but their heart still longed for a conquering king. One of the main reasons that the Jewish nation as a whole could not receive Jesus as a Messiah, could not deal with the fact that he was the one God had sent is because he didn't come riding a big white horse, have a sword in his hand, and start slaughtering Romans and restoring an earthly kingdom. There's a day when Jesus will come and do that, isn't there? Be riding a white horse, he'll have fire in his eyes, a sword in his hand, he'll be kicking tail, taking names, you know. 
But at this point, he came as a suffering servant, born as a baby, raised normal and humble, wasn't anything about him esteemable. It's not that he wasn't going to be a conquering king. Not that it was wrong to hope and want and look for and dream of a conquering king. But the point is that Jesus had spent three years pouring servanthood, servant, humility, the low road, serve others. Accept me because this is, this is the true nature of my heart. But they had a hard time with it. They just had conquering king, our comfort, our pleasure, our, we get to be served again on our mind. We're going to be on top. They had witnessed a suffering servant, but their heart was still longing for a conquering king. There's two things I want to close with. If you're writing them down, you can, you can write them down. One is we can't look to Jesus as the remover of affliction, as the remover of affliction. I got Jesus and now things should be great. We can't look to Jesus for the remover to be our remover, our remover of affliction. That's ultimately what they were wanting. Affliction will not leave us until the Messiah comes, until Shiloh comes. And when he does, we won't have to worry for a thing anymore. I don't know if you ever read the Gospels, but Jesus was teaching something completely different. Now there's a positional peace and rest that comes and affliction that goes away. My heart is no longer afflicted. My soul is no longer afflicted. My spirit is no, no longer destined to um, rot and burn in an in a ugly, nasty place. That's true. The peacemaker has come, and now I have peace with God. I'm no longer um, worried or concerned about being in a place separated from God. That's true. But that's not what was on the forefront of the, of the Jews' minds. They were thinking on an earthly, temporal state. We want to be back on top. We want to be comfortable. We want to be esteemed. We want to be the popular ones. We want to be the nation that people look to as the ones that got it all together. We can't look to Jesus to be that for us. Lord, just make everything great. Just make everything smooth sailing. Just, just, if that is what we have in mind of our Savior, we are so far off that we are not able to experience the spiritual blessings that are just permeating in our midst. We can't look to Jesus as the remover of affliction. Look at John 6, 33. I think I have it up here. <clears throat> Jesus' words. He said, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. That happened. That's true. That's accomplished. In the world, you have tribulation. That word can be translated affliction. But take courage. Rise up above it. Stay steadfast and steady. Head up tall, even in the midst of it. I have overcome the world. The word overcome can be translated conquered. So Jesus did come and conquer, didn't he? Jesus did come and conquer. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered confusion. He conquered unrest for the weary soul. So he did, didn't he? We just have to see things with spiritual eyes instead of looking at things in an earthly kingdom activity kind of a way.
The next time he comes, and he will, we'll talk about that probably soon. He will come with a sword in his hands and fire in his eyes and ready to take care of a different kind of business. But for now, we have to live with the reality and the spiritual truth and awareness that, that I, I have victory over sin. Death no longer has a hold of me. I may die, but if I do, that's all good because I'm going to go and live eternally with the Lord. Confusion isn't a problem of mine. I have full clarity. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, who is the counselor and the comforter, by the way. You want comforter? Submit to the Holy Spirit. You have all the comfort you want. <laughs> you know, it's a different kind of comfort, but it's the kind that is real and lasts. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.17. I, I like this scripture, and I think it's appropriate for today. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, we have it up here. It says, for momentary, or for now, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I love that. Light affliction. Light as in, yeah, there's affliction. And it may be actually pretty deadly and pretty harsh and pretty oppressive. and It may be hard, but compared to what we're going to get to experience one of these days, it's light. I can deal with this now knowing what I get to deal with for eternity. And he's speaking on spiritual terms and spiritual language. I love the message version of this. Can we, we have that up there? <laughs> these hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times. Isn't that good? <laughs> That's good stuff, right? These hard times are small potatoes. Quote that to somebody. Hey, listen, I know you're going through a hard time, but bro, these times are, are small potatoes. Compared to, this, to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't that speak of a whole different level of understanding? It's, it's a spiritual mind. We think too earthly sometimes. We think earthly kingdom stuff, earthly kingdom activity. Jesus was leading them to understand about the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God activity. Second thing I want you to write down before we go is we can't desire. And this is where this is, this is a lot of where this is coming from in the disciples when they ask this question. We can't desire to be served, but rather to serve others. until that flips in our mind, until, until it comes right side up, because to seek to be served is, is upside down in the kingdom of God. In the world, it is right side up. But in the kingdom of God, that mentality, that desire, that pursuit is upside down. It's backwards. You seek that, and you end up being last in the kingdom. But if you'll seek to serve, you'll end up being first in the kingdom. It's two different things. We can't desire to be served, but rather to serve others. When are you going to set the kingdom back up? When are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel to us? They heard the stories. They knew what it was like in the days of, of uh, King David and Solomon. And King Asa said they had ten years of peace. Ten years of peace. No one came from any side against them. They remember those days. They've heard the stories. That's what we want. 
Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. It says that he will comfort us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. In other words, he's not going rem- to remove affliction. Maybe some, but not all. He may even add some affliction. Why? So that he can be the comforter to us in those afflictions. And so that we will be able to, in turn, turn around and comfort those who are really in affliction. Especially especially the affliction of the soul, right? Right? Isn't that more important? Isn't that a more important affliction to, to be taken away? So, he comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. If there's anything in you that is saying, Lord, just... Just take it all away from me. I just want smooth sailing. Listen, we all want that. Seems like a more appropriate prayer according to what God was teaching us through His Son, Jesus Christ, is depend on Him. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Ask to be filled. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for the promise so that when affliction comes, you will be able to handle it just fine. And in fact, will be strong and steady enough to help others during that time of affliction. We can become so... We can quickly become so focused on the earthly, the here and the now, the comfort, the pleasure, the safety from harm and from pain and affliction. And when we do, we basically become useless to anyone, to all of those around us who may truly be in pain and affliction. But the flip side of that is when we are focused on His kingdom, His ways, His will, His plans and His purposes, and are walking with His power and authority and strength, when we're walking by the Holy Spirit, empowered with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, then we have the ability to have peace in affliction and we're able to lead others to He who is peace. The peacemaker, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And this is another reason He's like, wait for the promise. Wait for the promise. Just the first few verses of the chapter of Acts are just setting the saints, the apostles, and all the believers up for what it's going to mean for the next, well, so far, 2,000 years. You need the Holy Spirit to fulfill the, the Great Commission, to be a decent witness, to operate the way that you need to operate when trials and tribulations and affliction come. You're going to need the Holy Spirit, so hang on. You know? You hear what I'm saying? Let's stand. Are you guys encouraged? It's funny because we we only know, uh, right now, all we've ever known is, is being a nation, being a people, being a city, being a person who, in the scheme of things, is on top. You know? We pray for Haiti. You know, this, they're certainly not on top right now, are they? I wonder what kind of prayers they're praying. You know? Maybe they're desperate for the Messiah at this point. In the past, they haven't been. But does it, do we have to get to the place where we are not on top? Do we have to 
You know, what does it take for us? Does it really have to take us being just junked around just to love on the Lord? Or can we just, um, even where we're at right now, understanding that, you know, anything less than the peace of the Lord, anything less than walking in His grace and His goodness is really no fun. You know? Do we really have to always be seeking to be the first in this earthly kingdom? Or could we shift and say, you know what? I'm going to actually, I'm going to actually try the whole, um, the last shall be first thing. And become servants. Just servants. Just serve at your work. See the need. Serve it. In your family. Go home for holidays and mom slaved over the hot meal. Go do the dishes. Whatever. There's all kinds of examples. You hear what I'm saying? Serve, serve, instead of just sitting back. Yeah, I could use another cup of coffee. You know, that is just junk. I think this is God's heart for us, and this is one of the things he's wanting the disciples to understand. It's like it's not what you're asking and what you're worried about. It's not even, that's not even for yours to decide. What you need to do is wait for the Holy Spirit, because when he comes, he will come with power. And that's what you need. Let's pray.